welcome to Repertory Screenings, Episode 2. I'm your host, M, and with me is my co-host, Kyle. Hey. Uh, how you doing, Kyle? Have you seen any movies? I already told you I have not, so this is your time to shine. Um, I have seen movies. I've seen one movie and one play. Am I allowed to talk about the play? You can totally talk about the play. So this is it feels um, ultra uh, privileged in some way um, and very sad, but I saw um, The Damned which is an Ivo Venhoff production of a screenplay that was um, written by Luciano Visconti. And that film came out in 1969, I believe. And the film and script are about this um, German industrious family, kind of a nouveau riche uh, family that has made its money uh, from steel and is continuing to ascend into um, the German aristocracy, uh, however it existed as Nazism was rising. Um, by selling its steel to the Nazis. And as certain members of the family are becoming more conflicted with the rise of fascism and selling their goods to the Nazis, the patriarch dies, or is murdered, rather. And then there is this battle for power amongst the Essenbeck family. Um, And the nephew of the patriarch um, is is named Martin and he is technically the heir to the fortune and he is a sexual deviant who does Marlene Dietrich drag in the film and in the play it looks like um, Billy Joe Armstrong essentially Um, and so the film is not very good Um, it's because of all the actors are most of the actors English is not their first language but it is in English and everyone is speaking English Um, Mm -hmm. there is something that feels um, as if it is not registering the way it should and that everyone is on different pages. Um, Which is a shame because Charlotte Rampling and Dirk Bogart are quite good in it. Um, And it's really... It should be very twisted and strange, but instead it comes off as kind of um, boring and very slow and unsure of its own um, political warfare within the family. And it's intentionally soapy. Um, Visconti was in love with Zoom, with extreme zooms, but even that feels kind of uninteresting in this film. And it just goes on for like two and a half hours, um, or two hours and ten minutes rather. Mm-hmm. Even though there's this one very long sequence that's like 15, 17 minutes long of these Nazis who are kind of in the throng in a fraternal um, a bonding session of drinking and they get progressively drunker and drunker and drunker they sing nationalist songs and their clothes start to come off some of them start donning drag and it's this really interesting um this one sequence at least is re- this very interesting uh way of examining the the queer aesthetics of fascism and the way that um fraternal bonds within um, fascist ideology can reinforce fascist ideology or can reinforce, uh, reinforce um, patriarchal ideas, a kind of desire for uniformity and self-obliteration, at least as it pertains to queer people. So the movie is not very good, but that sequence is, and the sequence where Martin does Mylan Dietrich drag. But the play, uh, directed by Eva Van Hove, who is a Belgian theater director, and he's done a lot of kind of avant-garde productions of of well-known works such as um, Arthur, Mil- Arthur Miller's A View from the Bridge, which was on Broadway re- uh, recently, and he also did The Crucible with Ben Wishaw and Saoirse Ronan. 
Um, he did the David Bowie musical Lazarus uh, that was off Broadway, and then he's done productions of like Angels in America, and uh, a lot of his work is inspi- heavily inspired for adaptations of film. So he's done like a lot of Bergman. He did scenes from A Marriage as a play. He did Persona as a play. He did Cries and Whispers as a play. He did um, Cassavetti's Opening Night. Um, he did other Visconti, like Rocco and his brothers. Um, and he also, in at the National Theater, did Network um, with Brian Cranston. And a lot of his uh, theater work is, is heavily defined by how minimalist the set design is. And his the, the scenography is done by his partner, um, whose name I don't remember at this moment. But it's kind of a combination of this very stripped-down, deconstructed, Brechtian minimalism, as well as uh, an inclination towards mixed media. So in a bunch of the productions he's done, he's had this live cinema thing where there are camera people on stage capturing these moments of the actors, um, and it's projected on this large screen on a live feed. So this production of The Damned is something I will never get to see ever again in my life. It's incredible. It brings out all the complexities and nuances of the script, of the political warfare between the family. It makes, and because all of the actors are speaking in, in the same language that is a foreign language, my, I watched the film with my friend and we were like, would this movie be better if they were speaking like German or something? Um, but it, it, the performances are just so... Um, are so animalistic and concentrated. It's it's wild. It's application to a study of power, regardless of its relevancy in this current sociopolitical climate, just seems to bleed out from every corner of the text. It's and the the person who plays um, Martin Christoph Montanez is just. The, one of the most thrilling performances I've ever seen. It's just, it's, he, it's an adaptation of the script, not of the film. And it just takes place on this mostly bare stage, um, where they're on the left, on stage left, there are like makeup, um, seats. Like when, when you're in your dressing room and there's like a makeup mirror and whatnot. And then on the right, there are these coffins. And at each time a character dies, they get into the coffin. Um, and it's sort of reminiscent of a 2004 production of Sweeney Todd. But, like, when you have the camera kind of invading their space and catching all the, the subtleties in their facial expression, and then you have a, a performance as electric as um, the person, as Martin's, it's just such a, a moving, um, scary, horrifying, fascinating experience. And it had has... And 11 day run in New York because it played for a little bit in London and it played a little bit in Paris and it premiered in, at the Amignon Festival in 2016. It's it's one of those productions where you understand why they could only do it for 11 days and you're shocked that they could even do it for that long because it seems totally exhausting and, and very logistically challenging. But that is the best thing I will probably see all year, maybe for many years. Um, but yeah, that was incredible. Um, the Damned uh, by Eva Van Hoff, which you can find videos of online. Not the whole thing, but like previews and you can kind of get a taste of what it's like. 
Uh, so I saw that, and I saw Three Identical Strangers, which is a documentary um, by Tim Wardle about these three triplets who were separated at birth and were adopted by different families. And <clears throat> the they reunite and they are very they become kind of a media frenzy and are fa everyone including themselves are fascinated with the story of like how they came to be reunited and then as the film unfolds it is revealed i don't care about spoilers in this particular context because calling anything that is spoilery within this documentary is also a front and a front to documentary ethics and um mental health um conversations but like as it is re revealed, um, like they were separated at birth for a, a twin triplet study that a doctor with, that had fled from Nazi Germany was was um, running um, at this Jewish hospital or Jewish adoption agency rather, um, and it's just really bad. Like it is a bad documentary in the form in the term of, in terms of how it's structured and how it seems to not really care about the humanity of any of these people. Um and it doesn't care about the intricacies of the um scientific argument that it's trying to make. It doesn't care about the um the subtleties of like what it's like to be in this media space where these people are kind of trying to perform the fact their tripletness, their similarities. Um, and then it's like really offensive because it treats the the suicide of one of the brothers, Eddie, which is public record, as this spoiler plot twist. And it it doesn't really know how to handle like the mental health conversation because that the the suicide of one of the brothers is used as a jumping off point to talk about how within this study that was conducted over 20 years and that has not been published and sits in Yale's archives. They use that as a detail, as a jumping off point to talk about how certain, how there is speculation or a hypothesis that certain mental illnesses may be inherited or genetically passed on from a biological parent. But I don't think it, the problem with the film is that I don't think it actually cares about exploring that in depth or with any sense of meaning um and it's a bad documentary and i got into an argument uh, about the film with someone yesterday and i'm not even on twitter anymore so yeah it's a bad it's a bad movie i almost walked out i saw an alamo draft house and i ordered a salad and i was very close to walking out fair enough yes oh uh, with that you want to get into our movies this month you you could talk about the tv shows i feel weird just being the one person to talk about two things for like, I mean, like I, uh, I, me and Destiny are nearly the end of Hannibal. Uh, I've watched a bunch of anime. I don't want to talk about that. I have another anime podcast. You can go listen to that there. But we can talk about Hannibal. I, I guess we did a little bit before we started recording. Sure. Uh, I am like four episodes from the end of Hannibal. Um, season three has been a weird uh, roller coaster because I feel like the bifurcation into the Florence stuff that is uh, very liberally adapting the book Hannibal and the Red Dragon adaptation, which is much more straightforward. Uh, the Hannibal stuff is much better than the Red Dragon stuff, uh, generally. Yes. Uh, it gives it gives the show much more room to play and be uh, arch and evocative and interesting. Uh like Will Graham now just kind of trying to be normal, 
tracing another serial killer is there's no way he can live up to Hannibal. And I guess that's like arguably the point because they're like, oh, he's still trying to do this thing with someone else now. Um, almost like a rebound relationship in the the way the fil- the show presents it. But uh, I generally just am not here for it as much. Uh, the Like Francis Dollarhide is not as interesting. <laughs> that is true. Um, yeah, I mean, I, we spoke about this off the mic earlier. Mm-hmm. I is maybe an unpopular opinion, but I preferred the murderer of the week format because that mm-hmm. was that was the show at its least serious. Yeah, or at least self serious. I think it is aware of its trashiness, but I, I have an inkling or an inclination uh, rather towards that format because I think it's just a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, it's and a large part of. Uh, a large part of it is by going back to Red Dragon, they like it feels like the show stylistically and tone wise and just even like setting wise took a weird step back towards like a sort of conservatism because mm-hmm. Red Dragon itself is a is a story about a serial killer with a like a cleft lip who works in a film development lab. Everything about that sentence is very of the era in which the book was written. Mm-hmm. Um and there's no way that the movie tries or the show tries to escape that. Like they even have Freddie Lowndes now writing for a tabloid instead of running a website, which is really strange. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know, like the whole thing has just been very weird. It feels almost like like if they had made a movie out of Hannibal, this is the movie they would have made because everything's just slightly different. And I feel like it would have been maybe better if the show had just ended with the the like midpoint of season three. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, but I'm I'm still enjoying it. Like, I like Hannibal. It's a good show. I just feel like the best days are behind it, and now I'm kind of patiently waiting to see how this ending plays out. Would you watch Will and Hannibal make out? I'd be really grossed out by it. I don't... Re- like, their, like, intellectual romance is interesting to me, but I am not there to actually ship them in a real way. <laughs> Uh, I find uh, Mads Mikkelsen, like, very off-putting, um, uh-huh. like, physically. Uh, he just so, looks kind of inhuman and dead-eyed. Not daddy. No. And uh, and Will Graham is kind of boring, honestly. <laughs> Whoa. I am offended. Um, I, I, I appreciate Mads Mikkelsen's kind of unconventional beauty. Um. And I appreciate Will's milk toast beauty, mm-hmm. or um, uh, Hugh Dancy's. I would watch them. I would. I would not say no if they propositioned me personally. Um, I would be interested in how the show would film that, given that there is a sex scene in the end of season two that I think it's maybe is it. It's probably the yeah. It's got a no. It's early season three that is just like a psychedelic mess in a very interesting way. Um. And I would like to see them do something similar with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, I've also been watching Glee. I should mention that if we're talking about, a little about TV. Don't you hate Glee? I do, and it has not gotten better. It's kind of <laughs> like the closest thing to self-torture that I have gotten to, uh, entertainment-wise, at least. Um, it's bad. It's it's Nothing is making it better. It's so bad i i'm amazed that i lasted as long as i did during its original run um i watched up to midway through season three when it was originally on and i, I had made it so midway much... through season one and bounced out so you made a good decision i mean i had such hope for it as a kid it was it spoke to me i was like a, a 
closeted little theater child. I mean, I didn't do theater, but I was interested in theater. And so having yeah. having Kurt do Mr. Cellophane from one of my favorite musicals, Chicago, was meaningful. Not in a, like, seeing myself way, but in a more like seeing that other people were interested in similar things. Um, which may be just like an extension of that idea. Uh, but it's, it's, I would probably, will probably end up writing something about it once I finish. And I'm, I only just finished season two because it, 26 to 22 episodes per season is madness. Um, especially with garbage like this. The biggest problem is that it, I, the show does not know what it wants to be in terms of whether it wants to be a, a satire of after school specials or a very earnest after school special and it's not it does not have the skill set to be both and to balance those things out or to play with those contradictions at all and so now so basically you have like uh, sue sylvester the mean coach either being needlessly cruel in one episode or then seeking empathy for like the death of her sister um, in another episode, and it's ridiculous because it it's it is these characters are not well written, which makes um, storylines that are kind of ridiculous um, on on purpose seem that more much more arch and um, insufferable because you don't have like a grounding to want to follow these characters into these ridiculous storylines, so everything just seems really annoying. Um, it's bad. It's very bad. I'm glad I am not high this time because I had the second half of the weed cookie that my friend gave me for my birthday while I was watching season one. I watched like episodes two, three, and four while high, incapacitated, and I'm never going to do marijuana again. Don't do drugs, kids. Uh, I don't enjoy it, so I don't. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it makes me irritable. More irritable? M? Ha ha ha. Uh... Yep. Let's get to our movies. I'm joking. So I'm sorry. No, I know. You're fine. Uh, before we get into them, we watched this month uh, Enough Said and Carell. As always, we will talk about them explicitly with spoilers and stuff. So if you want to bounce out now, I guess uh, I don't know why you're here in the first place. <laughs> Uh, our first movie is Enough Said. It is a 2013 uh, film uh, written and directed by Nicole Holofcener. Uh It stars Julie Wee Dreyfus, James Gandolfini, Catherine Keener, Tony Collette. Uh, it is about Ava, uh, played by Julie Louis Dreyfus. She is a masseuse and she's a uh she's a single mother with a teenage girl who's about to go off to college uh she's at this party with her like married couple friends and she meets a poet uh marianne played by uh Catherine keener and they hit it off and she's like oh come and give me a massage in time and they, they do and they have this friendship and she talks about her ex who she thinks is like a gross awful slob and but then at the party she also met this guy uh named albert played by james gandolfini who they're like, let's go on a date, even though they didn't necessarily think they were, like they both admitted that they weren't attracted to each other, but like, let's just do it. We're single parents, middle-aged, want to go on a date. Uh, and they do, and they fall into this relationship. And it turns out, of course, that uh, Albert is Marion's ex that she's been trashing. And Ava's in this impossible situation of dating a man. She hears all of the dirt of someone who hates him, spews at her all the time, uh, and doesn't know what to do about it. Uh, which is roughly the plot of the film. Um, this is notable for being James Gandolfini's last film uh, before he died. Uh, I think that's all I've got. Uh, 
I picked this movie mostly because I always wanted to watch it when it came out and missed it until now. Uh, I like James Gandolfini a lot. Um, Kyle, how did you find this film? I had seen it back in 2013 um, in Virginia. I was visiting a friend. <laughs> and I kind of went in blind. Um, and at the time, I liked it. So rewatching this was nice because I feel I would have a different perspective. And I, I do like its bittersweet qualities. Um, I think the first 20 minutes are really rough because uh, it takes it takes a, a little um, getting used to uh, Hall Center's um, dialogue rhythms because they at once seem somewhat off-putting but also feel very real um, in a very uncomfortable way. The, the way that certain adults talk to one another. Um, there's There are strange pauses or there are strange... Um, affectations to the way they articulate things um but i thought it was very interesting um these mm-hmm. people who are who don't know what to do with the past as a way to guard themselves for the future um i was interested kind of the parallels between um the relationship ava has uh with um marianne and then the relationship she has with her daughter and then her daughter's friend um, played by Tabby Gavinson. Um, and it's th- neither of them really know how to deal with um, the past and, and how it may protect them for the future. Um, and mm-hmm. in particular, um, Ava's daughter is leaving for college and doesn't really want to spend time with her mother. But when she sees her mother hanging out with her friend, she gets really jealous. Um, and um, uh, Ava is using Tavi Gemson kind of as a replacement daughter for a little bit to at least foster some intimacy because her daughter seems unwilling to talk about personal things there to to be able to work through her life um, in, in a similar way. Um, her daughter doesn't seem like she wants to share herself with her with her mother anymore. Mm. Yeah, that ended up being the story that I found the most uh, surprisingly affecting in the middle of this. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing... so. I mostly enjoyed this film watching it uh, because everyone in it is very like quietly sad, but in like a very normal human way that is relatable. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a a surprisingly ghoulish amount of conversation around James Gandolfini as like a fat man in the world in this movie, though, that I found distressing Um, and maybe a little morbid given that he died shortly thereafter. Um, yes, but isn't the point that those conversations are ghoulish? Yeah, they are. But also, I don't know if the movie go like, recognizes enough that even the, like, oh, we shouldn't talk about these things is in itself kind of like this weird paternalistic opinion to have towards it. Okay. Um... Okay. Because I feel like like Marianne just digs into him as like this gross fat slob, right? And then Ava yeah. is like, no, that, that he's he's cute, he's nice, he's fine, and ends up like for a brief period buying into Marianne's descriptions, uh, and seeing like beyond the veil of like what it's like to have this bitterness towards him, and comes back around to no, he's actually all that stuff it might be true, but he's still got a great personality behind it all, and it just seems very dismissive. I don't agree. I don't think that she comes around with it. He's got a great personality. I think she genuinely really likes him and let someone else's other's perception color her perception of that of that man. I don't Mm -hmm. I think um, it's it's hard because 
Nicole Health Center's directorial techniques don't necessarily um, uh, make it easy to discern this, but I think that after she spends a lot of time spending, uh, after she's been spending a lot of time with Marianne, uh, the the film becomes way more subjective um, in its point of view. And so the things that she's experiencing where she's like becoming increasingly annoyed with the way that he whispers or the um, way that he plays with his popcorn or the way that he doesn't like onions, I don't think they are as rooted in reality. I think they are, they are themselves projections of what, um, uh, Maria, uh, what Ava fears is true of, of Albert mm-hmm. and by the time it comes back around like those things those those details that Marianne has been talking about Albert aren't as present they they are mostly present within like the middle section of the film but then they kind of like taper off after the big argument that um or the the really um awful dinner that uh, they the the four of them the four friends have um and Albert is just meeting kind of Ava's friends Mm-hmm. I, I don't disagree. I think it veers into all, like kind of a tropey sort of a, like awareness of like schlubby guy that gets the girl archetype sometimes. It, I, like it steers on the very perimeter of that thing, but I don't think it's free of it, like being tainted by it. Okay, fair enough. I I, I guess I'm inclined to give uh, Hall of Center the... Uh... Slight benefit of the doubt because she always she strikes me as like the I guess the smarter person's uh, Nancy Myers because one of her earlier films uh, Friends with Money um, is like really aware of its class discourses and I think mm-hmm. this film is also aware slightly less aware but is aware of like the um, the economic st- stratum that these characters exist in and how it affects their relationships. Implicitly. Oh, absolutely! Like. Uh, like Marianne and Eva's relationship in particular is very defined by Eva's like a working mom trying to get this done. And Marianne mm-hmm. sits in her garden picking herbs all day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which, yeah, like, like I have, this is the first uh, Hall of Center movie I've seen. Uh, and I enjoyed it enough. I, I really would like to go see Friends with Money. Friends uh, with Money is so good. Jennifer Aniston is a gem. I love her. Um, But uh, that like, and this is... Like admittedly, my major complaint in a movie that I otherwise really liked. Uh, like I enjoy, like the story of Eva is in losing her daughter and having this mer- this uh, new relationship kind of burn out. Has to learn to like discover what she herself is as a person, mm-hmm. as because she's always been like putting that into the other people around her. Um, and that story, I think, is very good. It is like the quietest version of. Uh, like a midlife crisis, like Stella got her groove back kind of narrative where it's just her asking someone to help her carry her massage bed up the stairs. Mm-hmm. It's like a big deal for her character. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, so there's a conversation at the dinner, at one of the dinners, um, and I'm curious as to what your answer will be. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's a hypothetical scenario, I believe, where Ava is talking about her ex-husband and how Ava um, eats cookies does not have control, um, and when her husband stopped buying the cookies, he got mad. And they have a debate as to whether um, the husband should stop buying cookies or whether it should be on the wife character in this scenario um, to just stop eating cookies. 
Um, I feel like the answer I have and the answer that like neither of them come to, but is the right answer is they should have had a conversation about it. Right. <laughs> like the, the thing is like, if she wants to like be the person who chooses to eat the cookies, uh, that's fine. If she wants to be the person who decides to have the self-control, that's fine. Um, but they should have the conversation about whether or not he should do that for her or if she wants him to do that at all. And these are characters that in generally like across the board are very self-centered. Like the married people are defined by their like focus inward to the exclusion of their partner in a way that is uh, sad, but not like, not like untraditional in this kind of depiction, right? These are a lot of like upper middle class married people who kind of live selfish lives, right? Quietly and loudly and obnoxiously. Mm-hmm. Um, and that conversation and showing that like the people that we're rooting for who have f- kind of fallen out of that class and are like living on like in the strata underneath it, were still those people when they were part of it, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I agree. I have a conversation. Both of them put effort. I don't know. I think it's, um, I think those conversations, uh, very much are, are both the thesis of this film to some degree, but also indicative of like this broader idea that, um, those, that those conversations are what's wrong with straight people, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I'm joking. That's bad. I'm sorry. I mean, look, I'm I'm not here to disagree with you. <laughs> okay. Um. Then you can call, cut me off. Then you can cut me out. Um. Saying sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I I just think that kind of the the assumption that um there are these bound roles, gender roles, um within this conversation just reveal kind of the dysfunction of like assuming that one person has to do all of the work to for that problem or quote air quote problem to be fixed it's like just have a conversation about it literally just like both do something about it Hmm. yeah no i definitely uh, agree with that and in many ways like that's the thing that the movie itself is like leading to is those two just sitting on a stoop actually talking to each other about everything that's happened right um, but it takes a long time for them to get there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you think Tavi Gemmonson is a good actress? Um, I really liked the stuff with Chloe. I would have loved to have seen more of it. I thought that she was like, I don't know if she's a good actress, but she has like a very distinct personality on camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something very like over enthusiastically eager about her. Like, it's in the character. Like, it's a character who has kind of a mom that she doesn't like, and she can come over and hang with Eva, and Eva will, like, try to understand her and be a parent in a way that her mom is much more like, I'm going to be like you and be the cool mom um, and try to be your friend, even though you don't want that, that I found very uh, sympathetic because I also was just looking for a parent at that age who would actually try to be a parent. Um, I... I didn't know of her, so I looked her up and I was like, oh, I, I understand. Really? Like, oh, this is wow. interesting casting here. Um, uh, but um, I thought, I like, I would watch a, more movies with her in it, like, specifically because she was in it. So I would say, yes, I did enjoy her in this movie. That's so interesting. I'm I'm a little surprised that you weren't aware of, of her um, presence on the nope. web. Um, I like that storyline quite a bit, and I, I think mm-hmm. it is a really nice complimentary 
um, subplot for the film. Mm-hmm. I have I'm very skeptical of um, Gavinson as an actor. There's something like I recognize, as you said, that Chloe is someone who's very eager, but there's something that seems like uh, Gavinson is trying to play to an audience that is not a movie audience. It's almost like she's playing to an audience that is at a Q&A to talk about Rookie Magazine. Hmm. Not knowing any of that, none of that came across. Like, I, there wasn't anything to me that felt particularly, like, forced or performative about her and this, like, this uh, role. Uh, the thing that actually bothered me the most is that it doesn't get any closure in the movie itself because it, it's, like, the C-plot of that film. Right, 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 right. Like, her married friend's weird conflict with their, like, live-in housekeeper or whatever has way more closure than this thing with Chloe, and that's a real bummer to me. I wish that that had been explored a little bit more, because that also is a really good or really interesting class thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I found it particularly interesting. I appreciated that the movie never depicted as anything other than like grossly embarrassing for the people who have a live-in housekeeper and can't manage to like actually talk to her. Right. Uh, because I don't have a lot of sympathy for this rich people bullshit. <laughs> Nor I, but I do love Tony Collette. Oh, and I should say mm-hmm. that I love Catherine Keener. Um, she is just radiant and amazing, and she is she doesn't get enough credit for being kind of chameleonic. Um, yeah. Cause she plays like a, a kind of annoying rich white um, lady poet in this. Yes. She so plays like, the, the version she plays in this is very much like the cautionary. Don't meet your heroes version of Catherine Keener. Like if uh-huh. I envisioned what it'd be like to meet her and she was disappointing, I would envision this character. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is perfect. She's really great in being John Malkovich. She's really good in the Incredibles too. Mm. Did you see The Incredibles 2 yet? No, I haven't been to the movies in quite some time. Why are you doing this to yourself, Em? Uh, because I'm broke and I don't want to go to the movies because it costs money. Do you have? Do they have movie pass in Milwaukee? Nebraska. Nebraska, Jesus Christ, Kyle. <laughs> um, I They might, I don't know. You should... Does the Alamo accept it? Because that's yes, the it closest does. theater. Yes, it does. Okay. I'm... Maybe, maybe we'll look into look, that. Look, I understand that movies are expensive and theater is even more prohibitively expensive. But you should get MoviePass while it's still, like, marginally sustainable. It's not that sustainable. Mm-hmm. But, like, it is at least an opportunity to go see movies more often. That's true. Yeah, no, I have not seen Incredibles 2. I, my feelings on The Incredibles 1 are so sour, I wouldn't have seen it even if I was going to movies regularly. Because it's Ayn Randian? Yes, and I don't particularly like Pixar films ever, honestly. Um, I think you're kind of wrong about The Incredibles. I, I think there are strains of Rand in there, but I think it is a good, a, an interesting enough film for that, not, for, for that to not be a qualitative demarker. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't care about Pixar the same way that a lot of people do. But um, I really love Ratatouille. I think it's one of the great films about art. Uh, I would like to revisit Ratatouille to have to see how I feel about it mm. and, as like an adult. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Um, but yeah, no, I, so Catherine Keener, she's in Incredibles 2. She is good in it. I've heard that movie is the things that I didn't like about Incredibles 1. I've heard take a big backseat in that second movie. So I would probably enjoy it more. Um, I would say that, um, I'm sorry. I got distracted because something in my computer started going, um, started playing and I couldn't find what it was. So I apologize for the gaps or the pauses. I would say that the Incredibles 2 is, I've not yet had an opportunity to write this piece, but it is an answer to the Dark Knight and the rest of the kind of superhero industrial complex that has come, that has been born out of that franchise. Um, I mean, I hate the Dark Knight way more than I dislike the Incredibles, so. Well, I think the Dark Knight is a less good film than a lot of people give it credit for, um, and not its Patriot Act nationalism notwithstanding but like the the patriot act kind of apologia is like an important reading to or an important reading um material to understand why the incredibles 2 is interesting um and i are you gonna go see it should i talk about it or no you can talk about it i it will not influence my decision to see it one way or another well it might the only way it would do is encourage me to seek it out more so so i believe that katherine keener's character so the incredibles 2 briefly takes place immediately after um the incredibles um and um when they're trying to go to to capture the underminer they end up kind of messing things up and the government isn't enthusiastic about it and there's there is more legislation um to to push back against the presence of superheroes in modern day life um and there were so the family is worried about their if their way of living as superheroes and then there's this rich benefactor um called uh, uh what's his name oh i'm sorry um There's this rich benefactor um, named uh, Winston Dever, and he and his he's been obsessed with superheroes since he was a kid. His father was very much a beneficiary to the superhero cause, and his goal is to make superheroes legal again, which is not subtle by any means. But no, um, his goal is to make them is to to improve legislation to make superheroes legal. Uh, and then there's this other super, there's this other villain kind of traipsing around the city as they, as Winston Dever's company is kind of testing out these measures to, to make superheroes uh, legal again. They're trying out body cams as a way to prove that they're still good, which is oh loaded. I, I know this is not a great sell right now. Um, they employ, um, uh, Elastigirl to do this as this villain called Screen Slaver is kind of traipsing around the city. So that is a very long kind of lead up to the villain ends up being controlled by Winston Dever's sister, Evelyn Dever, played by Catherine Keener, who um, is a technological genius. And her goal of the film is not world power, but to reveal that superheroes are not good. They shouldn't be the the things that we rely on for justice or or the um adherence to law in society um there's a lot of weird feel- kind of 
quasi-philosophical arguments in the film. Um, I mean, this is this is the this is the viewpoint of the bad guys in Civil War. So, <laughs> yeah, I think she's the hero. Um, yes, I believe that she is effectively arguing. Like she doesn't. She uses screenslaver as a as a way for um, the um, audience, the citizens of the place, um, to recognize that. Um, they should not trust these these um, tools, and she wants to do the same for superheroes. That superheroes should not be trusted as the um, the form of, of law or justice. And I think if essentially she's arguing that like superheroes are vigilantes that are kind of arms of the nation state, and like you shouldn't trust them. So I thought that mm. was interesting. It was a bad explanation, but no, I understand. Uh, that makes me more interested in, to watch that movie than I was before this. So, yeah. by a lot. I the fact that she's painted as the villain, of course, is like weird, but also not. Um, it seems to be fitting within this trend of like left kind of villains with leftist ideology being painted as villains. Like that was true of Black Panther, so far as I can tell, having not mm-hmm. seen it. And then I haven't seen a. In, why would you go see Infinity Wars and you won't go see Incredibles too? I didn't see Infinity War. Ah, uh, wait. Then how do you know about this? Because I googled what happened in Infinity. I I was talking about Civil War One, which oh, was sorry. years ago at this point. I don't. And uh, they're the same. I did to not me. see. I did not see Infinity War because uh, I'm basically out. I'm not going to go see these Marvel movies anymore. Good. Um, I think the Incredibles Two is an answer to the Marvel movies. Hmm. That makes sense to me. Um, but I have to develop that thesis a little bit more. Um, but I think it's—I think that's an interesting claim to make within a within a movie that had a heavy—that is a sequel to a movie that had a really heavy influence in some mm. regards to the current superhero industrial complex, and is now kind of apologizing for it because there's so the iconography of superheroes has reached kind of an apex in terms of the way that we consume media and the way that we have access to those outlets. It's interesting to see the Incredibles to have a villain that basically says, this is bad. I don't know what you like didn't listen to anything I said. Now you're just kind of like cashing in on it. Mm -hmm. But anyway, Catherine Keener is great. I love her. Yes. Uh, I think that's all I have. We should probably move to the next movie. If, uh, if you have nothing else, since we went on this big tangent on <laughs> Incredibles 2. I am sure the listeners are going to love that. <laughs> That's all right. Um, anything else before we move on? Um, I guess our verdicts. I quite liked it. I liked it a lot. Uh, for all of my disquiet about it, um, I enjoyed its honesty about these people in a way that uh, I don't often get in romantic comedies. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, it's good. I, I should really uh, go see Friends with Money. That's I'm going to probably do that before we record again. Would be my guess. Is that is that going to be your next movie? No, absolutely not. I already have my next movie picked out. Okay. Okay. Uh, all right. Um, our second film is Corel by uh, Rainer Werner Fassbinder. Um, it came out in 1982. It is uh, West German French, uh, but it is an English language film. Uh, it stars Brad Davis, Franco Nero, Jen Moreau, uh, Lauren Mele. Uh, 
Kyle, would you like to describe this movie? Uh, what it's about? I could not tell you what it's about, and I watched it. I think what it is about what it is about plot wise okay. does about, not matter. How about I will briefly describe the plot. Well, uh, well I was going to ship... do that. Okay, go ahead. I, I thought no, you, you weren't do, going to. No, do that. you do it. Then you do okay. it. Okay. Um, the plot is about a ship called. Uh, Le Vigneur arrives, uh, it arrives in Brest. It, it is carrying a soldier, or sorry, a sailor, uh, Georges Carrel. Uh, he visits a bar called the Ferio, where his brother uh, is. Uh, his brother is the, like, side piece of uh, Madame Lassan, who runs the bar uh, with her partner. Uh, what's her partner's name? No, no. Uh, Carrel comes in and is like, I would like to deal, sell opium, uh, do a drug deal. Um, murders are involved in that drug deal. Uh, and then everyone, like a lot of this is about Carell's relationship with Nono, who he sleeps with and his general, uh, sleeping with the men around this bar in this situation as murders mount up. Um, it's, it's a little more complicated than a summary would do justice to, uh, but ends up being mostly about uh, men uh, looking at each other, sleeping with each other, and murdering each other. Who among us? Uh, yes. Uh, do you want to talk a bit about this movie, why you picked it, how you <clears throat> feel about it? I, I have to admit, I'm a little at a loss to where to begin to talk about this movie, so I'd like you to take lead. So, Ryan Veda Fassman is one of my favorite uh, directors, and he is very, very, very prolific. He died at an early age from a drug overdose, and um, he produced, like, 40 movies or something. Yep. This um, was his last film, I forgot th- I said This that. was he... his last completed film, and so I was yep. interested in that. I was interested in um, the kind of symbiotic relationship that this film's iconography, this film's aesthetic has with kind of leather culture more generally. Like, this comes much later, much much later than, like, Tom of Finland or a lot of the leather culture that was kind of um, being born out of post-war uh, masculine angst. But it's a really good... Um, a really good example or case study of what that looks like and how... how the, that kind of those masculine codes, um, those queer queer masculine codes operate and function, how they communicate with one another. Um, but, but like the movie itself is very weird, and I don't know if good and bad are necessarily qualify. Is it? It's more like it's your speed or it's not. Your mileage may vary. And so yeah, my uh, if you let me briefly interrupt, my watching this was like. I don't think I like this. This is bad. I really hope this movie's over soon. And then looked and, oh, I'm only 40% in. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and then the minute it was over, I was like, you know what? That was pretty good. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's has this very, it has a much more experimental structure than a lot of the Fassbender films that I've seen. He's not that he's straightforward by any means, but he mm-hmm. mostly kind of pedals in, um, narrative, in a narrative cinema um, that is fairly linear for the most part um but yeah. this film adapted by uh adapted from Carl de Brest, which is by jean genet is l- more esoteric in nature it's kind of closer to it's like the film version of a lover's discourse by roland barts in that it's much less about about the plot and much more about what the, the kind of desire and homoeroticism that is being bred out of it and the kind of implications of that in in a more atmospheric tonal way so like you have up these 
you have a bunch of these sections where a scene will fade out into this white light and it'll be a quote either from Genet or from some other philosopher or writer talking about desire or talking about homosocial friendship, um, talking about, uh, there's a lot of um, narration and it's talking and it's kind of trying to get the um, the interiority of Corral for the most part. Um, sometimes his brother, um, uh, sometimes his, his brother, uh, Franco Nero, I mean, um, Sablon, my apologies. Uh, but it is, I, I read a little bit that the original production was like, wanted to be much, ha, wanted to have a, an aesthetic that was much closer to some sort of realism, but then Fassbender took it over and it's lurid and it's colors. It's yeah. very saturated. It's very predicated on, on a sort of, um, artifice of masculinity effectively yeah, like the, all the, the all the, the sailors and stuff like are exaggerated forms of working class um, the thing man. the thing it struck but, the thing it struck me like most was uh mishima life in four chapters yeah absolutely which is also a very like stagey film about very toxic masculinity maybe in a much more uh uncritical way than this movie is mm-hmm. you think mishima is un is less critical of masculinity than so one of the things i want to like we back when this podcast was uh trash Rock ratio we watched as one of our final films uh the bitter tears of petra von kant and hey. listening to that episode i was i was very critical of like the opinion of women that that movie had and i think this movie really leans into that opinion coming from men who buy too much into masculine bullshit mm-hmm like this movie speaks to like murder and sexual violence and misogyny as borne out by like the necessary conditions for masculinity to be the thing that it is. And I found that like a very like frank appraisal of the situation. Um, I was reading a little bit about the response to this film and people were like, when it came out, they were like, oh, this is really regressive about how it uh, shows gay people as, like, representation. Uh, but honestly, I feel like it's really honest and deconstructing the the situations that exist in real life more than it is, like, we're going to give you a message about good gays being mm-hmm. aspirational. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just very real mm-hmm. uh, in its headiness. Right. So I think I would ask you to reappraise Petra von Kant with that in mind, because I think yeah. Petra von Kant is, ends up being, like, much less about women, but more like women playing men. Mm-hmm. Because the original play of Petra von Kant was women, but it's like it was inspired by like Fassbender's own toxic um, uh, affair or crush with another actor, and so it's this weird drag almost mm-hmm. that is that is the text of the film. But anyway, I think Corel is not fun to watch, but also really interesting to watch. In a, in a bizarre way. Um, there's a particular line where um, Jean Moreau, who also is kind of like the, the cabaret singer, is like, each man kills the thing he loves, which I think is from something else. Um, it's from it was an Oscar, Oscar Wilde. Wilde yeah, yes. Oscar Wilde, the ballad of, uh, the ballad of reading Gaul. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought that was really interesting um, and kind of plays into this thing that I've been thinking about recently, uh, about uh, homoerotic fascism etc and it's like oh so men and and homoerotic desire are kind of like ideologically or philosophically about self-obliteration and you can read depending on how you read the ending of Corel, where like 
Corel technically goes back on a ship and whatnot. But then, like, um, uh, but then, uh, Lysian gives, um, Seblon, like, a tarot reading. Is like, oh, you don't have a brother. Um, and starts laughing hysterically. And you can read this as, like, Corel never existed. This was just, like, Seblon's way of, of channeling his queer desire and, like the masculine, the toxic masculinity always existed within him, but Corel is an apparition of it, so he can separate and distance himself from the actions that he's committed. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's fair. I saw that read and was generally less inclined to it because I enjoyed the representation of their brotherhood if they are both like real and important and both can exist in this film just fine. There's no need to like pick one over the other, but Mm -hmm. them like dancing around each other, knife fighting in the street Mm -hmm. uh, and Lysanne's like uh, accusation that they really just wish they could like fuck each other Mm -hmm. and eradicate everything else is the like height of the self-centeredness that this movie revels in. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Totally agree. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I think f- for it's it's audio was really weird at first, but I think it, because it even though all the actors are speaking English, it seems as if, as if it's been ADR. Every... Yes, it definitely it definitely felt like one of those like spaghetti western kind yeah. of ADR mm-hmm. situations. Mm-hmm. But I think that almost gives uh, a that almost accentu- accentuates the kind of fever dream um, artifice that this film exists in that universe mm-hmm. and i apparently brad davis was queer on the down low okay which is weird because i wasn't buying him as queer at first uh i didn't have an opinion about this to be honest so. really you, is it not important for you that that characters read it um i i don't know i don't know these actors and i assumed everyone involved would have been uh queer but i didn't really think of it that much honestly oh i mean okay so i i didn't know brad davis was until after i saw the film but um Mm. um, or was what whatever um but like is it does it not matter to well i mean i would not have assumed that actors involved in this project would have been queer because most i i think it's the standard rule that most actors who are in queer projects are not themselves queer it is the writer or the director at best well, one the one thing as I was watching this movie, Destiny was who didn't really watch it with me looked over and uh, the guy who played uh, no no uh, Gunther Kaufman was like uh, in a relationship with Fassbender and she's like oh that told me a little bit about his story so I just assumed everyone here was in some weird spiraling death relationship with Fassbender. Uh, I mean, really, who among us? <laughs> Everyone's in a death relationship with Fassbender if you think about it. The story of Gunther Kaufman, by the way, if you just want to look at his Wikipedia sometime, would make a really good Fassbender film. Holy shit. Accused of murder in relation to the 2001 death of Helmut Hagen. Yep, an accountant who his, uh, his wife had defrauded. Uh, Kaufman was sent to, sentenced to prison, apparently covered up for his wife because she was dying. Um, it Just a, a whole mess. That's and then bizarre. when he left prison, he went on to be like... Uh, be an actor again. He was just on television as like a character actor. That is bizarre. Mm-hmm. So fast. Oh, and anyway, yeah. So Corel, uh, a lot of sailors. Uh, I'm hot. Yeah. Masculinity. Mm. Gay. 
it's weird because it definitely feels like it's trading in like old style gay tropes probably even for 82 I, I guess i don't know the timeline of this in my head but there's there's a very deliberate old-fashionedness about it Absolutely. that i find very interesting what do you mean old, what do you mean old style tropes like just this like very like sweaty men like furtive glances groping each other. like there's a very like aggressive like berry uh butch masculinity that i like i read as something that's very like 70s ish more than it is like this film like in europe in the 80s right um like i would have like i feel like it's trying to be old-fashioned about it i would say yes and no like it's it definitely pedals uh in a kind of cruise cruising masculinity that was more relevant pre um pre stonewall or like in just in the aftermath of stonewall um mm-hmm. it's iconography it's iconography of masculinity again is derived a lot from leather culture which was very much popularized if not um necessarily or if if it did not necessarily originate from like tom of finland which is like very post-war so it is intentionally using like war world war Two slash post-war versions of like hot sailors and butch masculinity and leather um mm. intentionally but i would say that it's only old-fashioned because we don't see it as much not that mm. it like there's an entire community that w- within the gay and queer culture that is that uh, is interested and um finds like this kind of version of masculinity or or experimenting with it um particularly mm. through materiality like the thing like it's mm. it still exists in certain sectors and not in small means at all. Yeah, um, I guess like one of the and this is something that I don't have the historical context to speak to. So maybe you know more than me. There is a sense in this movie that like all of these characters who are gay men are like unenthusiastic about it and treat it almost as like a burden that they bear that they have to be this way. Um, that feels very like not true even in the context of the story like it the whole thing with Corell is that he acts that way but he secretly is really into just being a gay man in this world right um bottom no less yeah and it's weird to me to see that be like the driving force of everyone's motivations we're like oh yes we're all gay but we feel very weird about it because we recognize it is not the right thing but yet they are just like the sweatiest purest gay men i love it i would say that that is accurate because um, I, I don't, I, I'm resistant to think that Corel Corel is supposed to take place in like the sixties, if not before, mm-hmm. because I mean, Janae, so Corel de Brest, uh, was published in 45. So actually it's supposed to take place in the forties. And yeah. in that context, like when you're in homosexual environments, like being a sailor or being an army Navy person, I don't know what I'm saying, something with war. But like when, yeah. when you're in those environments that is that are dominated by where there are no women, um, where only kind of projected or performed heterosexuality can exist, um, if men do engage in like homosexual activity or in queer desire, they don't love it, but like they're going to do it because there aren't that many other options available. They talk mm-hmm. about like wanting to fuck women at a at a brothel, um, yeah. But they, but because this is the resource that they have, 
um, and because um, they can compartmentalize it as re- not so much queer sexuality as a so much as a reaffir- reaffirmation of their heterosexual masculinity, they can do it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Jane Ward wrote a book called Not Gay, Sex Between Straight White Men. Um, mm-hmm. And her, I haven't read the entire thing because it's the heady book, whatever. Um, but her thesis is that in there are a lot of communities, especially, out, especially outside coastal areas, where um, straight identified men will have sex with one another, but do not claim or identify as queer or as homosexual or as bisexual yeah. because rather it is in certain contexts it is a way to prove that they are themselves men because only a man would not want to have sex with another man to prove that he would have that he could have sex with another man and then just kind of leave it at that and i think mm-hmm. corral um i think corral is a little bit as the character is a little bit more complicated but the rest of the men i think are very are in very similar um psychological uh situations Mm-hmm. yeah it's just a strange situation given the like explicit uh like gay culture theming like the police chief is literally just in like leather daddy police gear mm-hmm. the entire film uh and to see like this sort of like almost like closeted homosexual impulse culture writ in the like in the pageantry of actual gay culture is uh discordant in a way that is clearly intentional but mm-hmm. it's still discordant I think it's amazing. I love it. Mm-hmm. But I think it is. I I don't think it's historically inaccurate. Um, I think okay, fair enough. I I mean, even today, uh, even in in contemporary like um, army culture, I don't know. Like, I, what is the proper term for that? There are still it, it. There would still be similar examples of that. It, there are not as many, clearly, because the culture, kind of the mainstream culture, has changed in terms of the way the discourse about sexuality has changed. But mm. it would especially have been true in the nineteen forties, where like definitely men would have had sex with each other and just not mentioned it, or like would have had like this um, ambivalence towards it while doing it. Mm. That's fair. And I I think the, the having coding these characters as both in emblematic of the ambivalence that would have existed within that particular platform or that kind of social environment while dressing them up in a very costume like way in the very iconography that is about heterosexual working class masculinity as costume as exaggeration I think is kind of brilliant because it mm-hmm. forces those characters with their with their ambivalence to reconcile with the the kind of um with the kind of object they they're forced to recognize the fact that they are objects of fetish mm. that makes sense to me i'm glad i'm glad it makes sense <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, this was, this was a strange experience. Like I said, I watched that movie. And I was like, while watching, I was like, mm, I don't know about this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, no, I I like it how it sits in the memory. So mm-hmm. I feel like people should seek this one. This one's on films, uh, Filmstruck. Yes, this, that, that if people are so inclined. I try so, to make it available to my people. Yep. Um, 
I think that's all I have for this one. If you yeah. have anything else. Um, I hope this gets released on Blu-ray because it is really beautiful to look at. Yeah, the streaming version is not bad quality, but I would love to watch this movie in a higher quality than they had it in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's... I would like to see it in a context where I'm not just watching it on a, on a laptop. Because I think because of the pace of this film and the kind of rhythm of its dialogue and the rhythm of its of its narrative, this is a film that you that it's you can't have many distractions because it takes so much time to get used to the the kind of world that you're entering. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. I second it. Um I think that's it. Right. So oh do you have something else? No, no, no. Okay. Uh we don't have any questions. If you want to send us questions, you can do so at a podcast abnormalmapping.com. Next month, Kyle, you have a movie for us. I do. Um, I wanted to pick João Pedro Rodriguez's debut film, O Fantasma. João Pedro Rodriguez is a Portuguese filmmaker, uh, queer filmmaker. Um, his most recent film was The Ornithologist uh, from last year, which was my favorite queer film. One of my favorite films of the year, actually. Um, and... Uh, the the Portuguese style is actually O Ornitadejo. Um, but anyway, O Fantasma is about this um, young man, young trash man, which is to say that he picks up trash, not that he is a garbage human being, but for all I know, he mm. may also be a garbage human being. Um, and he is kind of coming to terms and exploring his sexuality and doing so in a fairly unconventional way to the degree that while it was out of print, the only place that you could find it streaming was on Pornhub. Mm-hmm. But I'm excited about it. Okay. Is it available anywhere right now? Because I was able to track down a copy, but not through actual streaming means. Yeah. I. So my understanding is that it will probably end up on Netflix within the next month. So you should still have time to track it down on streaming in a legal way um, by the time the next episode comes out um, because it comes from strand releasing which originally had the rights and is now renewing them for a new dvd release um okay and most of strands stuff is on netflix um the ornithologist is on netflix so if you don't get to watch the um uh oh phantasma you can watch the ornithologist instead but i believe it should be on netflix in the next month okay um, my movie choice uh, is The Wages of Fear. Ooh, okay, interesting. The 1953 uh, movie directed by Clouseau. Uh, we, you were talking, as we started this podcast, I was like, wow, you're just really just like giving us a crash course education on like marginal queer cinema. And you were like, yeah, I'm just filling gaps, things I haven't seen yet, which is kind of what I'm doing. Uh, though I admit it comes from a much more like normal play like boring film person <laughs> place than yours uh but this is a for some reason this movie has always been the movie i think of when someone says like old foreign film uh, and i've never seen it and i want to fix that interesting okay i would be interested to see if like that um if if that predetermined idea of old foreign film will will still stand when you watch it i bet it doesn't <laughs> be my <laughs> guess because like I know roughly what it's about, so I'm also interested on those grounds. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, that's my choice. Uh, that you can find on Filmstruck. Uh, I'm pretty sure. So fantastic. Yep. Uh, do you want to plug your stuff, and then we can get out of here? Sure thing. Um, you sound very eager to get out of here, M. 
Hmm. No, I I want to get a drink and turn my fan on. It's warm in here. <laughs> yes, I I also want to do that. Um, not that we don't love you, listeners. Love you so much for not asking us questions. Um, but uh, you can find me um, online on Twitter sometimes at Tyle Kerner T Y L E K U R N E R. You can find my writing at Paste Magazine, um, and I freelance elsewhere. And you can find all that stuff um, at uh, TyleKerner.tumblr.com. I recently had a piece in uh, Paste about the queer aesthetics of fascism in The Damned. Um, so you should check that one out. That one I'm pretty proud of. Hmm. Okay. And you can find me, of course, at EM underscore being on Twitter. Uh, I part of the network abnormal mapping, go to abnormalmapping.com. We are Patreon supported patreon.com slash abnormal mapping. Uh, you can get all sorts of good podcasts across a variety of topics. Uh, None quite as heady as this one, but that's what Kyle brings to the table. Uh, thank you, Kyle, once again. Thank you so much and for we'll having me. We'll be back me. in a month to talk more movies. Yeah. Each man kills the thing he loves. Each man kills the thing he loves. Da da da, da 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 da. Each man kills the thing he loves. Each man kills the thing he loves. Da da da, da 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 da. Some do it with a bitter look. Some with a flattering world the coward does it with a kiss the brave man careful Corel. if you lose your footing you can sometimes fall very far thanks inspector how about it throw dice with me each man kills the thing he loves each man kills the thing he loves da 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 each man kills the thing he loves. Each man kills the thing he loves. Da da da, da 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 da. Some kill their love when they are young, and some when they are old. Some strangle with the hands of lust. Some with the hands of gold. Kai. Yeah. Where are you going?